Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Lisa here. I just want to thank you for supporting my podcast and being a loyal listener. I am so grateful to you. To show my gratitude, I am now offering 15% off at my online store. Visit me at lisacongdon.com to shop colorful archival art prints, stationery, desk accessories, home goods, and more, all at 15% off with code PODCAST15 at checkout. That's right, get 15% off of all of our products at lisacongdon.com with code PODCAST15 at checkout. Link to the shop in the show notes. Welcome to episode 36 of the Lisa Congdon Sessions. Friends, I am so thrilled to introduce you to my friend, Diane Sanfilippo, best-selling author, business coach, entrepreneur, podcast host, and to that notable list, I would add social justice activist, anti-diet advocate, and talented ceramics hobbyist, which we'll talk about a little later in the episode. For the past decade, Diane has been known as a multiple New York Times bestselling diet book author and former co-host of an eight-year top 20 health podcast. But after a career focused on diets and diet culture, Diane experienced a profound change of heart and intellectual shift borne out both of her personal frustrations with her diet journey, coupled with what she began to learn about the connection between diet culture and upholding white supremacy. In this episode, Diane and I talk about all of that, and specifically the impact of changing your mind, especially when changing your mind is in conflict with the way you have made money or what you have publicly advocated for most of your career. We explore the impact of Diane's shift not only on Diane, but on her audience. Woven into the conversation is Diane's own story, how she got into diet culture, her own experience with dieting, and her path to releasing diet culture altogether. I also share some of my own story of disordered eating related to my athletic journey, and some of what I have learned over the last couple of years. I really enjoyed this conversation. Diane is frank, knowledgeable, and extremely introspective, We do discuss diets, diet culture, and our own experiences with diets. And so if these are topics you prefer to avoid, you might want to skip this episode. For those of you who do listen, I hope you get something out of it. so thrilled to have you on the podcast today. First, I want to say that there is construction going on outside my house. <laughs> and also I'm home alone with Milkshake, my dog today. So, and she's, as many people know, a barker because if she barks today, it won't be her first appearance on the podcast. So you may hear her in the background, just ignore it. Anyway, so we're going to get into your story in a minute, but before we do that, I just want to say how much I admire what you stand for and how over the course of the past few years, 
you've moved away from something that you realized was harmful to you and potentially to other people. Even though this thing is something that was for many years your main income stream and the thing you were sort of known for. And, you know, we're taught to build a belief system and then to hold on to it very tightly as if it were part of who we are. And our beliefs become our identity. And when we're confronted with changing those beliefs, we're left thinking, like, who am I without this thing? And what does admitting I might have been wrong about something or who I was previously, it's deep stuff. And so you've been navigating all of that. For some context, you are the New York Times bestselling author of Practical Paleo, Keto Quick Start, The 21 Day Sugar Detox, The 21 Day Sugar Detox Cookbook, and co-author of Mediterranean Paleo Cooking. So the diet industry was your world, and to a certain extent it still is, except you've now openly divested from and rejected diet culture, and you are actively working and writing from that changed perspective now. And so I want to focus our conversation on this idea of changing your mind, and in particular, your experience with that. I also know that you have, in addition to rejecting diet culture, rejected, as you describe it, capitalist hustle, grind, earn money, be productive, create content for engagement. And I want to talk about all of that also because those are also things that I'm trying to divest myself from. And so I think we have some shared experience in that. But before we go there, I ask all of my guests to tell the story at the beginning of our time together about where you started that got you to where you are now. So take us back as far as feels relevant to you, how you ended up in the diet space, both as someone who dieted herself and how you ended up as a contributor in that space. Yeah, well, my earliest connection to the diet world was, I guess, first personally having gained weight through college and feeling that that, you know, at the time was like not something that was positive for me and going through a weight loss period. And then having this, you know, at the time epiphany, oh, what we eat really can affect our health. Like not smoking is not the only thing we can do to potentially be healthier. And I had been considering illness that was on both sides of the family. Like, is there anything I can do? You know, I think a lot of people who get into health and wellness and diet culture, but even from the health and wellness perspective, not just the lose weight diet perspective from, I mean, honestly, it's a deep seated fear of death and dying and illness and all these things. And it's heavy, but you know, that's where it comes from for all of us, like that optimization of health you know, we're all looking for something like that. So that was kind of the very beginning was this idea that, okay, what we eat, and and obviously now that sounds like, duh, this, you know, what we eat has an impact. But now I also have a belief that it's not quite as large of an impact as so many other social determinants of health have. So that was the very beginning. This is back in 2008. I started a meal delivery company. So that might sound familiar because I currently have one that you can order meals online shipped around the country. But at the time I was cooking the meals. So this maybe it was, yeah, around 2008 here in San Francisco. And this was kind of pre CrossFit days. So it wasn't like, Oh, there's meal deliveries everywhere. It was a very niche thing, but I was, yeah, I was doing that balancing meals for people in different ways. The company was called balanced bites. That's where it came from. And so I was into the whole health and wellness aspect of things. 
But where I dove in further was after closing that business, because it just was not for me, the grind of it was not for me at the time. I went back to a job. I was doing UX design for a startup and was just stuck. Like I needed something new. I was bored. A therapist I went to was like, you're bored. You need to learn something new. (laughs) And this actually happened to me recently again. I was like, oh, it's deep boredom, Diane. That's what makes you depressed. Like deep, deep boredom, not being challenged, learning new things. Anyway, so I went back to nutrition school. And that really kicked off more of the direction towards learning about paleo and starting CrossFit and getting into that scene, really teaching seminars around the country in CrossFit gyms. I was traveling all over the place. I had met probably hundreds of people before I ever was thinking about writing a book. So I was working with clients one-on-one after studying nutrition and getting a holistic nutrition certification, did that for a couple of years, and then was working with clients for a while and realized that that wasn't my forte. Like the one-on-one was kind of too intense emotionally for me, but that I could teach groups. And so that's really where I leaned into the whole like group setting. And after a while, I kind of had an idea for a book. I had seen some other paleo books come out. There was like one paleo cookbook that came out and I was really in that scene. I was in the CrossFit paleo scene and yeah, I just kind of had a vision for this book that I wanted to write and it combined my holistic nutrition background with what I was learning and kind of the paleo world and what I'd seen with, you know, success with my clients and through teaching seminars. And that's kind of what brought things to light in that realm. And it, you know, my trajectory and my story is really in line with what was happening with the paleo diet and that movement, right? Like I, as a white female educator had the privilege of a platform because, you know, people inherently believed me. I see so much of my story as being boosted by those privileges that at the time I don't know if I saw it the same way, but I see it very differently now. Like had I looked different or been different, I don't know if my voice would have been as loud, but that's kind of an aside. (laughs) But yeah, so I kind of gained notoriety for writing Practical Paleo. The book was on the New York Times list for like two years at the height of the paleo diet movement, which was around 2012 to 2014, uh, maybe a little into 2015 and beyond also had written a program called the 21 day sugar detox actually before practical paleo because I had struggled with blood sugar regulation issues and felt like that approach was helpful for me at the time. And so I kind of had these two things going on. I had been teaching about learning about the paleo diet and going on that direction, but the 21 day sugar detox was actually kind of my little baby project before that was ever a thing. And actually it was through the 21 day sugar detox that I started to see when and why and how I wanted to dismantle all of this stuff. Watching people use that program in ways that I was like, this is not what I said to do. I was like, "Mm, I don't, I'm not telling you to make it harder for yourself or to exclude all these additional things. Like basically watching human behavior in response to something that I created take this like divergent path. So the beginning of the breakdown for me of all of it was actually that was kind of like, okay, I created something I thought would be helpful for people, but I'm seeing that people just kind of make it more than that. I don't know. The last book that I wrote 
for the 21 day sugar detox. I actually have three books that came out on that program. And the last one was a daily guide. And that was in January, 2018, that book came out. And I would say that it was probably somewhere within that year or early 2019, I don't have like, you know, a written down exact date or timeline of when all of the stuff kind of came apart in my head, but sometime maybe in 2018 or 2019, basically, again, just watching people kind of, I don't know, I I don't want to say like abuse the program, but yeah, kind of like not use it as intended. We had a huge Facebook group. And so people would kind of share their stories and say what they were doing. You know, they were constantly watching their weight, constantly, again, like making things harder, doing the program repeatedly back to back. And I was like, "Mm, we're supposed to like learn something from that and then pivot back to real life, you know? And I always tried to give people some guidelines in the programs that were more realistic than not. It wasn't like, you know, you're just drinking this juice for three weeks because I felt like that was unrealistic. I don't want to defend the way that I kind of created rules because it was a diet. It was what it was, but It was this planting the seed of that cognitive dissonance for me of like, I don't know that that's what I really want to be doing because it's not being used as I intended. And so if I can't control that, if I can't make sure that it's like safe and effective in the ways that I thought it would be, then it feels irresponsible to support it. And so those two things were really separate for me. Like the seed was planted with the program and watching how other people kind of behaved within it. But my personal breakdown of not wanting to go through gaining and losing the same weight over and over again, that really happened like January, 2021, maybe after the pandemic, I had gained weight that I had spent all of 2019 losing. Like I've gone through this cycle maybe 10 times in my life and I stepped on the scale and I was like, you know, the last time I stepped on the scale and I was like, am I going to go through that again over and over for the rest of my life? So I had first the the bigger picture breakdown of this stuff. And then with myself, I was like, I literally can't do that again. So I need to find another way to just love and accept myself in the body that I have that naturally wants to be when I eat food that feels nourishing. And that's been the journey that I've been on now for the last two years. I, I'm somebody who, I mean, my career has been so public, everything with, you know, writing my books and teaching, like it all kind of happened at the same time as social media was becoming a thing and really growing. And so my audience, my readers, my listeners, you know, I had a podcast for eight years, the Balanced Bites podcast that started in 2011. Like people didn't even know what podcasts were back then, you know, you know, 400 episodes of talking to tens of thousands of people every single week about this stuff. And I very much felt like when I had this deep change of heart and change of thinking that I needed to share it publicly on my social media. Like there wasn't ever a question of like, oh, will I not say anything? You know, because I felt like I just had a responsibility to share what was true for me now just because I had always done that. Yeah, I want to dive into that a bit. And I have I have so many questions So this kind of very personal thing happened to you that led finally kind of like you had already been questioning things and then you got on the scale one day and you were like, what, what am I doing to myself? Like this was very personal. Like 
which then, of course, made you realize you were contributing to that happening for other people, which you had sort of been thinking about all along. But, you know, I I think that often what makes us change our mind, and I've been reading a lot about why people change their minds and why people don't change their minds over the last couple of days as I've been thinking about this conversation with you. And so much of what does change people's minds is actually a personal emotional experience. Like facts don't change people's minds. It's personal experience and relationships and connection and a sense of self that has empathy for others and takes into account like honoring and loving yourself that actually helps people to change their minds. And the shame of, you know, admitting we're wrong about something is often stronger than our willingness to be vulnerable. And I think that's why your story is so, I don't necessarily say it's remarkable because I think there are probably a lot of people who are just like you. And I know, I'm sure you probably know and have met many of them who have spent years embracing diet culture and then have rejected it. I, as you know, am a competitive athlete. And in my world, the conversation is so front and center right now because as athletes, we've always been taught that smaller is better and that you're going to perform better. And now all of the conversations are around being fueled, that fueled is fast and fueled is strong. And I actually, what's interesting is I've always been a a normal sized person and I met you because, or I started following you because I bought your keto, one of your keto cookbooks, because I was going to try to go low carb for a while, because even though I was completely thin already, I was like, I'm going to be a faster cyclist if I lose 10 pounds which would have made me very thin, which actually ended up happening. So I did, I went on keto. I, you know, on the surface of things, I would tell people, oh, I just don't eat grains, you know, because I knew what I was doing was dangerous, but yet I did it anyway. And, you know, especially when you're an athlete, carbohydrates are extremely important. And so is protein, both of which things are like, you limit those macros when you're on keto. So anyway, I was so excited to have started this thing. I saw results immediately. And on the bike, I was incredibly tired and feeling depleted. It would take a really long time for me to recover. So even though I was maybe riding up hills faster because I was 10 pounds lighter, I was really struggling. And I listened to this podcast a year later and and actually the nutritionist who I work with now was the speaker on this podcast and she was talking about how, you know, basically a low carb diet is basically will destroy your system as an athlete, especially as a menopausal athlete, which is also what I am. And so I was like, oh my God, I need, you know, I was like suffering from low energy availability. They called it red S. And so I completely changed my ways. And so I also sort of in my own way rejected, I had never been public about losing weight or anything. And for me, it was not an aesthetic thing. It was like for athletic performance. And the thing is now I'm writing stronger than I was then because I'm fueling properly. But I also am, you know, going on 55 years old and diet culture and thinness have been such a part of the like societal cultural conversation since I was a teenager when, you know, anorexia was at its height because in the 80s, thinness was everything. So I have struggled in the past with eating disorders and disordered eating. And, you know, I had finally overcome that in my adult life only to fall back into it. And I'm now, you know, 
actually working on getting enough calories and fueling myself. So I still focus on food, but with a different lens. And that's been super helpful for me. Anyway, that's a little bit of my story. But I think that so often, you know, for women, this idea that, I mean, literally, I probably know two adult women who've never been on a diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whether in the name of weight loss or quote unquote health, either way. Right, right. Or haven't engaged in restricted eating, which, by the way, like food intolerances, there's a whole debate about how much of that is just because you're restricting them (laughs) that you're actually intolerant to them. I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But you know, because for a long time I was like, I don't eat grains because they upset my stomach. And so I'm actually working on introducing things back into my diet so that I can have a fuller, richer experience of eating food. So you mentioned earlier this idea of like what it's been like as a public facing person. You know, it's one thing to change your mind. It's another to announce it publicly and then change your actions and behaviors around that shift. So let's talk a little bit more about what it's been like as a public facing person in this public announcement, you know, the change in messaging on your platform. And you mentioned that it was like kind of a no-brainer for you. And for people who follow you, we see that you are very transparent and that you speak your mind about all kinds of things. And that is, I think, those of us who love following you followed you before this was even a thing because you were speaking out about issues that we cared about. So say a little bit more about what that was like for you. And then Mm -hmm. I'm curious how your followers, like, have they gone on this journey with you? Yeah. I think when I first was talking about it, it was very much around my personal experience with the cycles of weight gain and weight loss. And I, I don't think there was much questioning of that because I do think that most people, you know, those who have been in my world and on the periphery of it, think of diet culture only as being this thing that's centered on weight loss. And so when I kind of started talking about not wanting to do that anymore, people are like, oh yeah, of course, like don't put yourself through that anymore. I think people were pretty supportive of that general concept. But I think that where there was a bit more questioning, I wouldn't say pushback, just more like deep curiosity and questioning was around me sort of denouncing the restrictive approaches like keto, paleo, et cetera, where most of that I kind of had conversations on the podcast I did for about 44 episodes, which still continues. It's called Full Plate. So if anyone wants to listen to that, it's an anti-diet culture podcast. And I was on it as a co-host, really sharing my story and my journey with my friend, Abby Atwood, who is an anti-diet nutritionist. Like she does this work day in and day out with clients, with groups, et cetera. So The reason I wanted to do that podcast was to give more context and nuance and background to this whole process and my thought process and kind of the way I see things now. And I think that I felt I had a responsibility to do that, you know, to not just put up 10, 20, 30 Instagram posts, but actually in the format that I used to talk about paleo and different diets and all these different eliminations through the Balanced Bites podcast for 400 episodes. You know, we did so many episodes of that show. I wanted to use that same format just because that was how so many people had really consumed my content for so long. But I want to say too that 
I think one of the reasons that you kind of alluded to that a lot of people weren't particularly surprised about this change for me was that I have been very vocal about different social justice issues for many years. I feel like some of the first times I remember posting on social media about anything, I want to say back in 2015, is that when gay marriage was legalized like in the country? 2013. Okay, so... But I feel like something else happened. Did something else happen in 2015, though? Because I remember being in a San Francisco apartment and making a post. But maybe there was something I posted earlier. Yeah, it pro- there probably was. I feel like every year there's been something. <laughs> yeah, something. But I posted something in support of it. Like, I mean, obviously, whoever knows me knows that I was in support of it. And you know, got whatever backlash and then also got the people who could understand that, like, I'm going to stand up for things I believe in and post about them on social media and not be worried that I'm going to lose followers over it. And so I think from the beginning of that interaction and just being super honest about things that I felt needed to be platformed. And so over time, more of those issues kind of coming in with things around like systemic racism and diet culture just kind of dovetailed right into that. You know, people like Sonia Renee Taylor, who wrote the book, The Body is Not an Apology, her work really just has created a platform for this conversation even further about the way that we create these hierarchies of bodies. That's her framework where, you know, you mentioned it back in the 80s. You know, I was a kid in the 80s, but even growing up through the 90s, this like thinness equals goodness, thinness equals like smart and healthy and like all the positive attributions that we assign to thinness and putting this thin body at the top of this hierarchy. When I learned that that was also tied to anti-blackness and Sabrina Strings wrote Fearing the Black Body, which really dives into this whole topic and helping people to understand where that came from, this anti-blackness and anti-fatness mentality. So all of this stuff kind of converged for me throughout 2020, not surprisingly, right? There were lots of uprisings around racial justice and, you know, that year was and time continues to be this, I don't know, just implosion of everything. And I think because we were home, right, in 2020, it was like it forced this magnifying glass on so many things. And so that really became this exponential focus of my attention on the convergence of all of these issues. And it was like, if I'm going to stand for social justice in certain ways, I can't ignore how diet culture is a racist, white supremacist framework. And so anyway, you know, to your question about like sharing about it, I think it just was a natural progression of, I enjoy sharing the things that I'm learning Uh, I don't mind changing my mind. I think it's, it is hard, but for me, it's harder to be insincere. I don't really have, I'm not a good actor. I don't have that gene that, you know, I can put on one face to people and be another way. Like if you meet me in real life, I'm actually exactly how you would see me anywhere else. I'm quite a boring person. (laughs) I'm not theatrical, you know, in any way. I just can't be that way. And so, I don't know. I think it was a combination of things, you know, like I think people expect that from me too. I think they do expect to be a little bit surprised now and then and be caught a little bit off guard. Years ago, 
I was talking about setting boundaries on social media so long before the peak of this conversation, which is sort of happening now, because you may or may not remember, but Instagram in particular did not have many controls around the way that people could reach and interact with you as a creator. And so people were just DMing you that anybody could comment. You couldn't say only followers can comment. Like there were no controls. And the number of times I've been bullied and harassed on social media was so extreme that I was like, by the most random people and groups about very ridiculous things. I had these boundaries. I was like, listen, I don't want DMs. I don't want to open this up and not know what's coming at me because I would be attacked in DMs and it caused this huge cortisol spike and I would be dysregulated for days over this stuff. So I would talk about this all the time. I would talk about people not asking me questions that they could be Googling. I was like, I am not here for that. Like there might be creators who enjoy answering where you can buy this particular ketchup or whatever the heck it was. But I was like, are you that helpless that you can't use the Google search? Like, come on. I mean, I wouldn't say it like that, but I was like, hey, you can Google this. Like, I'm not a store locator. I didn't want to be relied on in those ways. And so people got used to me being like just really brazen and bold and people would call me rude. I'm like, am I rude? Or are you just trying to like take this easy way out and ask me a question that's really not for me? You know, like to ask my opinion on something, to ask me something that... I have the answer to personally, I totally get that. Fine, cool, got you. I will help. I'm like always happy to help, but not when it's something that's really not like you're taking my time for this. Come on. You know, so anyway, I think people were used to that. And I think for me, the discomfort of living in a disconnected way, like I couldn't be one thing behind the phone and then another thing like on it. You know what I mean? I have to. I have to have that integrity in what I'm doing. And I think, you know, the the point that you were making about this being my career and driving my income, like not writing books and not continuing to support this whole world of diet culture and not like continuing to run 21 Day Sugar Detox groups and all of that. Like, yeah, it's a huge existential crisis for me now, you know, at 44 to be like, what will my next career be? Because it's not that. You know, and it is really challenging and I'm, I'm lucky that I can give myself a little bit of time and space now to figure it out. Um, but it's absolutely not going to be that. And I, you know, it, it did take a little bit of time for me to kind of continue to just like tippy toe backwards from it, like this step back from it. But I just, I don't see another way. I just can't pretend to, you know, to the point where there's people who bought some of my books I don't have control over that part, like the printing and distribution. Like I'm not a self-published author, so I can't just like pull things. But yeah. And frankly, you know, it doesn't generate much income for me these days. But even that little bit, like I am at a point where I'm like, I somebody was like, oh, would you donate your income from it? I'm like, listen, I get it. But also I'm not in a position to be able to do that, you know, and some people are like, that's crazy. And I, I understand the question. I really do. But anyway, yeah, I forget what I was going to say there, but I basically just like have had to extract myself from it little by little and yeah, kind of figure out what's next. And I think that that's actually one of the hardest things for people to do in changing their mind. There was a quote, I I don't remember exactly. And now I'm going to botch it because I can't remember whose quote it is, but this is not my, (laughs) not my quote, but it's like, Essentially, getting someone to change their mind about something that is paying them 
that is sustaining their life and giving them a paycheck is really, really challenging. And so for somebody to do that, it is a big deal. It's a big deal to be like, you know what, I'm going to cut off my supply, (laughs) you know, my income from this thing that I was fully committed to. I mean, and I didn't do it because it was income generating. Like it was what I believed wholeheartedly for a decade plus. But yeah, it is really hard to get people to see things differently and change their mind when they're earning money from it. I mean, it's why cults are so pervasive. Right. I mean, obviously you just named so many of the difficult aspects of what you've done and gone through, but I imagine there's probably a lot of gifts too, including being like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Like scary, but also kind of like if you put the right pair of glasses on, potentially exciting, right? I hope I'll see it that way in time. (laughs) Right now, it's definitely unnerving. But what are some other sort of like gifts or positive things that have come from this experience for you as you've like, you know, divested from this former way of thinking? I think one of the biggest things just personally from deciding I'm not going to diet anymore, honestly, is feeling like I can interact with food the way I used to when I was young. Like, it's so freeing to be thinking I'm hungry. I'm going to go to this place and pick the sandwich that sounds the best to me and like modify it to what sounds the best taste wise and satisfaction wise and, you know, add this or swap that just not for anybody's rules, but because that's what sounds really good and I will enjoy it the most. And I mean, to the one person listening who's never dieted, this might sound a little out there. Yeah. But for most of us, like living in that space is a fantasy land. It sounds so far-fetched. And so, I mean, even for someone like you, who's in this place now where you're trying to eat for fuel, like the holy grail would be to get to a place where you can intuitively do that and not be, you know, relying on someone to kind of tell you anything regarding numbers or things to eat. It's more like I'm listening to my body, you know, and maybe one day it's pizza and cookies and the next day it's salad and something else. You know, it's like everything is fair game and you get to decide what feels and sounds good to you. So I would say for me, like that is one of the biggest gifts. And as much as that might sound again, like maybe trivial to some people, like that's the biggest gift. It's, it's all day, every day to be fueling ourselves, right? And eating. Yeah. For those of us who have spent a lot of our adult lives restricting what we eat for whatever reason, there is so much freedom in that. And then also the, like getting to the place where you do that without guilt or self-flagellation. Yeah. I think like for me, deciding I was done with the restriction and all of that was really easy and breaking through a lot of the rules has been, I mean, I say easy. I just think comparatively, because I think a lot of folks feel more attached to different rules around food. I think the hardest part still for me is just coming to terms with loving and accepting the body that I will be in and not trying to continue to make decisions that will change my body or like, because it would change my body. So, you know, I still struggle with my relationship with exercise because I don't think after high school, when I was you know, playing team sports, I never exercised for any reason other than to change my body, even though I loved it. I love how I feel when I lift weights and you know, I love how I feel when I exercise. It's still really hard to do that and break that apart. But in terms of other benefits, yeah, I mean, 
it remains to be seen what the next chapter will be for me. And yeah, I think it's just that personal aspect of like that freedom, that true freedom with food is, it just can't be underestimated, like how that can feel in your life to not have like an angel and a devil on your shoulder constantly when you're making those decisions three plus times a day, you know, to just kind of choose very calmly and freely. It's a huge gift. It is. Let's talk a little bit about other things that you've also been kind of learning about letting go of and changing your mind about. And I can relate to so much of what you said about say productivity culture also. I have this productivity class on Creative Live and I've spent some time thinking about what would I say differently about it now? Because I've like you, I've also been questioning like kind of writ large, like not just diet culture, but productivity culture, the hustle, all these things that I used to stand for and actually represent to others and how damaging they've been in my own life. And, you know, if I'm espousing these things, And I've sort of come out recently around, you know, having boundaries and taking breaks and all these things that I never would have talked about two to five years ago. So talk about that journey a little bit, like how this has opened up for you seeing other things that are embedded in our culture, specifically in white culture and white supremacy that that you're also trying to move away from. Yeah, I think for me, man productivity and the ability to earn money and an income and support myself, be able to take care of myself, do it myself, whatever it was, definitely a trauma response from my childhood. Like we had some things go on in my family that were, that just put me in a position where I was very much like, well, I guess I look out for myself right now. You know, there were just some hard things that we went through and So that's kind of how I adapted, you know, was like, okay, I guess, you know, I do this, I do this for myself. And so how that extended through my life was very much like riding the capitalism train of working really, really hard and being proud of working a lot and working hard. And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with hard work. Like, you know, I think it's a very fine line between being passionate about something and putting a lot of energy into it because you love it. And, you know, it's like, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't work on things that we love and care about and that can support us and all that. But I, I think that there's this line of, I do this because this is what society tells me is good or will make me good or worthy and loved and seen. So all of those things have been deeply intertwined into just my identity for a long time. And I don't think I've talked about this in many places. So learning from, again, more black women, really listening to what they're talking about, women like Rachel Cargill and Ebony Janice Moore talking about rest and rest as resistance and what it means to imagine a different world and a different life for ourselves. And I think realizing that the structure of our society is such that people are rewarded in ways that I don't personally feel reflect their contributions to society in positive ways. One of the conversations I have often is like with my husband, who's a sports chiropractor, and he literally like 
helps people feel better through physical touch that's like so nurturing and supportive and to think that I might have earned a disproportionate amount of money for like writing a diet book. I was like, don't you see how unfair this is? Don't you see how effed up this is? This whole situation, like none of this makes sense. (laughs) I might be a socialist. I don't know. But I'm like, the fact that we can't just choose what we love and are passionate about and are good at to do in this world because we're stuck in this grind of like, how can we make the money that we can live with? So all of that stuff just, it really hits me in ways from the outside of like realizing how society is and how messed up I think it is. And then from the inside out of like, well, is this the way that I can feel important to myself and others and significant? Like that's something that I struggle with a lot as a woman in my forties who chose long ago that I didn't want to have children and don't have children, you know, to feel that you don't have significance in that way is really challenging. And to think like, how am I significant in this world? You know, if I'm not everything to someone in that way. So anyway, it's all of these things kind of together that I'm currently trying to (laughs) deconstruct and figure out like, what is it that I want to be the core of who I am and what other people know of me that doesn't just rely on my productivity and my ability to contribute financially in the world and all of that. You know, and I own a small food business. So a lot of this has come into play with decisions I've made around that business. Like there have been some really challenging times when I've wanted to just pull the plug on everything. And a lot of times I look at, well, you know, I had a conversation with a a vendor that I work with and they're like, okay, well, this many people would lose a job if you stopped. And I'm like, okay, well, how can I continue to do this in a way that I don't feel that I'm grinding and stressed, but that continues to provide jobs for people? You know, it's like this constant push and pull between we live in a capitalist system. I, I can't not live in the system. We're in it. But at the same time, trying to make sure that people are paid fairly and the people that I work with are paying their people fairly. And we don't have the lowest prices on anything because the things that you don't pay much for, there's a reason, you know? So anyway, I'm getting into the weeds a little bit, but it's affected my thinking and decision-making on pretty much everything that I'm doing. You know, it's like, I can't not pass it through the lens of where does this stand or where, you know, how do I feel about this when I think about capitalism and all of that? It's like, am I raising prices because everyone's raising prices or am I raising prices because my vendors actually raised my prices and I have to raise the prices, you know? And it's not about padding my pocketbook and paying everyone who works for me the least possible amount. So yeah, it's it just affects everything broadly and also extremely personally. It's true. It's like once you sort of get into the... I mean, I don't ever think I ever really thought about capitalism and white supremacy in any overt way because I was, you know, so steeped in both things. And the privilege of how the system works. Yeah, exactly. It works for me, you know, until the last, you know, five years. And and then when I was confronted with it, I was like, I mean, I to be clear, I have been doing anti-racist work since the 90s. I worked, the original, you know, organization that I worked for was, you know, in the world of education was equity-based and like anti-racist and 
you know, I was doing that kind of work around privilege when I was in my early 30s. And yet, I never saw much of it through the lens of capitalism and white supremacy. And so there was this new level of learning that I had to do just in the last five years. And I've read a lot of the same things that you've read and continue to try to educate myself. But once you start doing that, there's no way to not see everything through that lens, right? Like as a competitive cyclist, I'm constantly looking at like who shows up at the races, who has access to bikes, who, you know, it's literally everything. And so I can completely relate to everything you're saying. And I think that so much of that is personal. And once you start to change your behavior or your actions as a result, even if it means that you won't benefit as much anymore, is when kind of real change happens. And like you, I have fantasized about, you know, I love being an artist and I love what I do. So don't worry, I'm not going to shut the doors. But I have had moments of like, okay, I need to completely shut down this aspect of my business, or I need to completely stop doing this kind of work because it's so grueling and I'm depleted. And then I realize like, and my coach always likes to tell me, you don't have to completely stop anything. And part of the reason for that is that I have two full-time employees. I support people, you know, and I pay them really well. And I'm committed to that. And so how can I find a space where I'm supporting my employees and also creating a work environment that is enjoyable for them? And then also take care of myself and kind of trying to find that happy medium because I, you know, I'm a person who, like you, so much of how I show up in the world or have shown up is a result of my childhood and like how my family structure was and the fact that I never felt seen. And so, the harder I worked, the more success I had and the more visible and known I became, the more I felt validated, quite frankly, in a way that I never had in my entire life. So personally, it's also hard to just be like, I'm not going to be as online as much and I'm not going to do all of the things that have brought me all of this success over time because... Anyway, I could talk about this forever. So I could. (laughs) It's probably one of the things that draws us to each other's. Yes. Quote, you know, content, but just the way that we show up. And I think it's funny because it's like you could have bought a book and then not have really connected, you know, with the author and the way that they show up and all of that. And I, I think that that's what's really interesting. It's like I've always I've loved your art and the activism in your art, but then continuing to read what you write and feeling like there were, we had so much in common in that way. But I, I think that learning that we both kind of had this not feeling seen or not being seen time period or whatever it was that kind of roots so much of the way that we kind of move through the world and all of that. And it is weird to have had social media run parallel to parts of our careers, you know, cause that it's like, what would life have been like without that, you know, pushing this public persona? Yeah, it's so interesting to me to think about because I think about my own career, it sort of wouldn't have existed in the way that it exists without social media. So on the one hand, it's given me so many gifts and so many relationships that I treasure and so many opportunities that are mind-blowing in a positive way. But, you know, like you, I have haters and, you know, opening up my DMs is always like a hold my breath moment. 
90% of the time they're fine, but then there's the 10% of the time where someone is rude or makes assumptions. It's like, it's such an interesting space because it's got so many, like, it's been life-changing for me in the best possible way. And it's also been exhausting and messed with me and my head so much in terms of what I owe people or what I think I owe people. And I'm really, really, really trying to change that. And you are actually such a great model for me around boundaries. And so there's so much work to be done. And I feel like my journey is just like continuing to work on that. And I'm, I'm sure you feel the same. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've totally changed the way I'm existing on social media. Like I basically, you know, I did this podcast. I did full plate for 44 episodes. Like I said, my co-host is continuing the show, but I, however many weeks ago now I hit a point where I just was like, I think I'm done. I think not my journey, but I think me having this conversation publicly, like I need to pull the plug on that for myself because I don't want to talk about this anymore. I spent more than a year trying to like undo whatever societal damage I may have done. You know, I, I, I felt a hundred percent that what I was doing at the time was helping people. And I don't think it was as damaging as it could have been. Like, I think that I've always been somebody who tried to like meter the language that I use and take a, a certain kind of approach with things. But I know for sure that, you know, I, I was a cog in the wheel of diet culture. And so I definitely felt like I, I owed it to, you know, whoever was paying attention still to put that out there. But I also hit that point where I was like, I'm done. I don't want to keep having this conversation. I'm not going to do Q and A's about diet culture anymore or anti being anti-diet, any of that. I'm like, I'm just, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to live my life and I want to just move on. And, well, and a lot of your content lately has been ceramics. I literally was like, I took a ceramics class recommended by a therapist. And I was like, this is my personality now because I spend a lot of time in the studio while I'm in this time of transition and figuring out what's going to be next for me, having this new creative outlet and way to make things and learn so much and like be a little bit okay at something, but be able to not be great at it and keep getting better and learning. That's been really nourishing. And also ceramics is like very, very meditative. I don't do wheel ceramics like you've been learning to do. I want to, but just even like playing with clay is so wet and mushy and like amazing in the best way. And all the places that your mind can go while you're trying to build something out of dirt. And you have to be really present with it. At least I do. I know a lot of people wear headphones in the studio and there's a couple of tasks that I'll do that I can do that, but not almost anything that's actually creating or building or taking a piece of clay from nothing to something. For me, it's very much forcing presence and focus on what I'm doing and that's it. And that's been a very, very good exercise for me, especially as somebody who for the last decade, I've had my brain taken over by social media, you know, and that constant dopamine hit of what's going on there. And I honestly really enjoy sharing the journey and the process of that. And so that's why I do share it. It's like, because I 100% enjoy sharing it and watching people say, I'm going to go take a class. 
or you've inspired me to go do this, or I used to do it, I'm going to do it again. Like, I'm like, sure. Does somebody who does clay things want to sponsor me? Sure. Like I'll take it, but there is no, you know, monetization of this and whatever other way. And eventually I'll have to sell some pieces because I literally can't keep them all, but I'm not trying to like turn it into a career in that sense. Just a matter of I'll have to sell things because I'll have to get rid of them. (laughs) Well, part of what I love is that you're doing it. And like, I mean, there was probably a time when you never would have considered sharing this hobby that you do. And like, I have started in the last couple of years, just really sharing a lot about my cycling journey and the ups and downs of that. And there was a time I never would have done that because I thought that's not my audience. People are going to be turned off. I'm not going to, it's not going to get enough likes. My audience won't relate to it. And then I was like, this is me. This is who I am. This is what I love to do. And that's my meditation. That's my, you know, thing that I have to focus all of my energy on or I'll crash, right? (laughs) Sort of like making, you know, throwing something at a wheel. And I love that I do that now. And I literally do not care how many people like my posts about cycling or not. I do it because it's part of who I am. I have cyclists on my podcast they probably will get fewer listens than the artists or, you know, whatever, but I don't care. I'm doing it because I love it. And I'm, I see myself changing in that direction where I used to monitor so much of what I shared because I was, you know, like, are people going to be able to relate to this or like this? And now I don't care. I really legitimately do not care. And turns out there are a lot of people who are interested in my cycling journey, but because it relates to so many other things. Totally. And I'm totally like inspired by it and interested, even though I'm not directly going to do that thing. And I, I think that's one of the things as being a person with influence, like I don't consider either of us quote unquote influencers. Like we do a thing or, you know, for me did a thing in the past that like created this platform that then I have influence from. But I think that it would be naive to not look at the ways in which we influence people that are just on the periphery from the main thing that we thought we were talking about, right? Like you're sharing your art and your social justice often through that art, but, you know, sharing your own journey with athleticism and the ups and downs of that and, you know, health and disease. I mean, how much you've shared about so many things has probably provided some kind of inspiration, motivation, grounding, support for people in different ways that have nothing to do with your productivity, you know, and your work. Right. And I think, I think I also have had just a very fraught relationship with social media over the last couple of years as things have changed on, especially Instagram. I know that's where both of us are kind of mostly have as our hub, but I very much have resisted the content creation hamster wheel that they want you know, wanting this content to be created in a certain way in order to grow. And I've only declined in followers over the last three years, you know, and I don't care. I mean, it's annoying and I wish it wasn't that way. But at the same time, I'm like, I can't make content for this thing just because that's what they say is what will work like that doesn't have integrity to me in the same way. And also, if I don't love it, it's not happening. Like, I'm not going to share if it doesn't feel like connected to who I am and how I want to show up in the world. And so that's been one of the joys of just saying, 
I don't talk about the things I used to talk about here anymore. Like if you don't want to follow, that's cool. What has been one of the most amazing things is to watch these potters and ceramic artists follow me. And I'm like, why are they following me? I started like (laughs) three months ago. I'm ridiculous, but it's so heartwarming. And I'm like, thank you for following me. And I don't know where it's going, you know, and I'm not trying to be like, this is, you know, I made a joke that it's like my new personality in terms of like a hobby, which has been great. I needed a hobby, (laughs) but I'm not planning on like being a ceramic artist full time and all of that. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that. But like, I need it to stay as a hobby and to sell it as a hobby just to like get rid of it (laughs) in that way or to have purpose and intention with what I'm making. I, I enjoy that. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's like the social media world is strange and I'm sharing there because I think it could help some people. You know, if it's helping me and it could inspire somebody else to take a class and they could be happy and it could bring something positive to their life, then I'm happy to share it. And so many people are like, this is really meditative to watch and thank you for sharing. And I love, I come back and check because I want to see what you made every day. And I'm like, I'm so touched. Like, I think that that's so sweet. And So what if people knew me and followed me because I wrote these books, you know, a decade ago or four or five years ago or whatever, I'm a person and I'm going to change. And, you know, if people want to follow along because we're interested in other people, then cool. And if me changing my mind and changing what I'm doing in a public way is not what people want to be along for, you know, for that ride, then that's okay. They can hop off, you know? Yeah. I, I I love everything you just said. What what last question? What advice do you have for someone who has changed their mind but is maybe afraid to you know, not very many people are in our position, right? Where, where they have, you know, 100 plus thousand people following them for a particular reason. But so not necessarily talking about it publicly, But maybe sharing with family or friends or just feeling nervous about admitting that they've changed their mind about something like because maybe it is connected to their career or something they've been very attached to in the past. You know, we we hear these very inspirational stories about people changing their political views or, you know, coming around to acknowledging white supremacy and all these things. And they're very inspiring because it's hard, right? Especially when the thing that you were formerly associated with is something that maybe we're learning is damaging to people. And what advice do you have for people who are maybe in your shoes but are afraid to talk about how they're changing their mind out loud? Um, That's a really good question. I think there's a couple of things. One is probably to make sure that you do feel supported by the people who know you the best, you know. Brene Brown always talks about like this one inch square piece of paper where you could write down the names of people who like get to know the real kind of nitty gritty of you and who you are and who are your inner circle that you trust the most and all of that. And I, I would hope that, you know, your spouse or your partner or your closest friends would be really supportive and that conversation would not be tense. And so just kind of making sure that you have those people kind of in your corner and sharing with them and being vulnerable to sharing what your what your change of heart and mind have been. I think also protecting yourself a little bit, like you don't necessarily need to have conversations with people that you know up front are going to be adversarial. 
Like I think having that boundary with yourself to be like, do I need to approach this person and be like, I don't think this anymore. I don't believe this anymore. Like you don't actually need to like step up and say it when you're in a position of public notoriety and you're known for a thing. It can, it can be important to do that. Right. But just kind of in your more private world, not necessarily, but let's just say, for example, you know, like the way I kind of talked about it with my mom, who I would consider probably on that little square piece of paper, but still a difficult conversation. Initially, it's like, just to say, you know what, I've been learning some new things and I've, I know that I used to do or think this, but I'm kind of seeing things differently now. I think acknowledging that, you know, you used to do and think differently and saying, I've learned some new things. And so based on that information, I've changed my mind and here's, here's what's changed for me. I would hope that we're surrounded by people who can be supportive of that. And if we're not, then that might be a different decision to make. Like, are these people that deserve to be close to us in our life? And yeah, I think that's probably one of the bigger challenges is that oftentimes people feel they owe family a certain level of relationship, regardless of how positive and supportive that family may be in their life. And we may or may not. I also think it's really important to consider having empathy for those around you who may still believe the thing. This has been a really big part of my journey is that I am sharing what I share, but have not individually gone to proselytize to people I'm friends with who might still kind of have their close connections in the diet world and community. Like folks have asked me, oh, have you maintained friendships with people? And I'm like, yeah, because I'm not trying to tell them what they're doing is wrong. They can watch me and see my example. And I have witnessed people making these small incremental shifts in the way that they share things, the way that they talk about things, and presumably the way they think and believe, right? Just as a result of my influence peripherally, not directly. So it's been really important for me to not, not try to proselytize perhaps the way I did in the past about what I used to believe, because I can recognize that like, you know what, we don't, Nobody knows what the heck we're doing. We're going to learn new things and change our minds about different things. And so instead of being intense and hardcore and trying to like get people to believe what we believe, just live our lives. And if other people want to take an interest in that and see if they might want to come along for that journey and they have questions, they can ask questions. But in the meantime, having that empathy and, and knowing that you once shared a very different message And so it would be unkind to just like look down on people who share that belief still and all of that, you know? So I think, I think that's a really important part of it is to not just suddenly think less of those around you who might not have changed their mind. And I I could see this happening kind of, you mentioned with like changing political beliefs and all of that. If you suddenly are like aware of and accepting that there is a white supremacist racist capitalist society that you're like, I don't know that I love and support this. You know, the people that you've known and loved for your whole life, you, you want to maybe lead your life by example, but it's really hard to just turn around and be like, you should believe this too. It's like, well, try and remember what it was like when you were there because it's really hard, but it's not impossible to change our minds. Right. And that's what we were talking about at the beginning, like this whole idea that, you know, you can't change people's minds by, you know, laying out the facts. I mean, maybe occasionally. Yeah, there are there are those few people. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, you know, that's sort of what I think we 
we want to try to explain, you know, why other people should change their minds too. And I've made some big changes in my life recently. And I know that sometimes when you make big changes in your life, other, like I stopped drinking. And so actually my, my goal right now is to make sure people don't feel judged by me because they continue to drink. And that this is a very personal reason for me that makes sense for me and that I've experienced life differently in the last three months. But that's just a personal, I also spent, you know, 54 years, or not 54 years, but since I was, you know, 16, probably, you know, drinking alcohol and no judgment. And yet, you know, that's, I think often when we do change our minds, other people automatically feel judged. A hundred percent. Yeah. Because they're maybe doing the thing that you've decided to give up. And so a certain amount of empathy is incredibly important. And I'm learning that right now. Diane, thank you so much for this conversation and for sharing so eloquently and compassionately about your own journey. Thank you. I just admire you so much and everything that you stand for. And it is really true that we've had sort of these, even though we do completely different things, like we've had these very parallel paths and we've really connected a lot over the last few years in terms of our journeys. And it's just been a privilege to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. That is so kind. I feel so honored that you invited me on the show and I look up to you so much as definitely a leader, as somebody who is vocal about so many things on your platform and through your art in such a vulnerable way. Like that vulnerability is such a strength that I see in you and I appreciate that you continue to show up in those ways and yeah, thank you. Thank you for seeing me in that way too. That's like I'm going to maybe start crying. I have <laughs> I didn't show you this before. I meant to show you, but on the wall in this little room is oh, yes. one of your pieces. Yes, protect, protect the vulnerable. vulnerable. Yeah, it's such a great reminder. Thank you. Thanks for all of that. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.